Today on Indie Thinker with Reggie Ruman, AOC responds to Musk's purchase of Twitter, and we see the good times roll when he responds. Biden yaks it up at the White House Correspondents' Dinner, and I'll show you how Biden's bow tie should be trending all over the internet. We'll see what we can do about that. I'll also illustrate how the Depp trial is exhausting the judges' patience and perhaps the world's. And finally, well-known pastor Tim Keller sets off a firestorm on Twitter by suggesting that we shouldn't divide over politics. I have some thoughts on how he's a little misguided on that. We'll talk about all that and more all on today's show. Hey, welcome to the show today, guys. Thanks so much for taking the time to like, share, subscribe, and to listen or watch wherever you may be enjoying Indie Thinker. Um, I am in the future going to be jumping into uh, a lot of content that I think is going to be interesting. Perhaps one of the most interesting things that I just recently jumped upon was a documentary that HBO did called uh, The Way Down, I believe. It's uh, about kind of like a weight loss slash Christian evangelical cult thing. Um, so I've been catching a lot of these lately, these documentaries that uh, are supposed exposés um, on the church and stuff like that. And so this one's extremely interesting uh, for a number of reasons, but perhaps the most interesting thing that we that you can get from this documentary, and I'll highlight this in a future episode when when I dig into this, but uh, perhaps the, uh, the, the biggest kind of takeaway that you can get from this documentary is the, uh, the question, and perhaps maybe answers to the question, why do evangelical especially, people on TBN, Christian personalities, have such ridiculous hair? It's almost as if, like, the crazier the hair gets, the more crazy the person is, and uh, you'll definitely see an evolution of hair and use of hairspray in the individual that's covered in this in this documentary uh, on HBO. Uh, so we did this, uh, we looked at the Hillsong documentary uh, not too long ago, and we're going to be looking at this documentary as well. So I think there's some interesting takeaways, and probably some things that I'm going to be talking about that you wouldn't expect. So, um, so be looking forward to that in a future episode, but in like fashion, we're going to be talking a little bit today about Joe Biden's tie and uh, how it kind of evolves in his White House correspondence speech, but also to, um, I'm going to be jumping in the front of our show today and talking about Tim Keller, and then I'll also be talking about him at the end, because I think there's there's some positive light that we can shine on Tim Keller because he's an absolutely brilliant man and uh, has been a blessing to the body of Christ. But then there's some things recently that, um, quite frankly, for me, and I would understand for you too, if you feel the same way, have been a little bit disappointing for you. So I, I think it's important and honest, at least for me, to to look at both of those things. We'll jump into that in just a moment, but before I do that, I want to make sure that you know that this show is sponsored by Element Funding and the friends over at the Kevin Blair team. Now, you guys uh, know if you listen to the show that uh, these are our longtime sponsors. So I'm not going to go into too much great detail today. What I'm going to do is just make sure you go down to the show notes and you look at not only the sources that we have available there, but also the links that we have for all the people who are sponsoring the show today. This is a great way for you to go back and support these people who are supporting this show. Um, and you can rest assured that if they're a sponsor on this show, that they are absolutely in love with this content and will be in love with serving you. So uh, make sure to go to kevinblairteam.com today. Let them know that IndieThinker sent you if you have any mortgage needs in your life right now. And 
if you haven't already secured that aspect of your, your personal finances, I'm just telling you, this is the time to do it now before things get worse than they already are. There is no floor to the Biden administration and things will get worse. So um, I say that to be as optimistic as possible because now is your opportunity to jump in right now before things get worse than they already are. So make sure to go to KenPlayerTeam.com today. So unless you've been living under a rock, you know by now that Elon Musk purchased Twitter. Now, I had a sinking suspicion about this, but Elon purchased Twitter on the heels of the Babylon Bee's suspension, and he had just gone on their podcast. If you don't know who the Babylon Bee is, like seriously, where have you been? Because they're an absolute national treasure. But nonetheless, uh, according to the Daily Wire, Elon Musk just purchased Twitter as a result, I guess among other things, but as a result of, of that suspension and his desire to see free speech actually protected on the platform. So there's this undeniable trend, not only with what's happening with Elon and the purchase of Twitter, but there's this undeniable trend happening in the, in the United States right now. People are fleeing blue states, you know, creating political refugees all, all over the United States. People are leaving Washington, Colorado, Minnesota, and Oregon, and California. And I mean, like, who knew after all these years of playing Oregon Trail that you would risk dysentery and Johnny's broken leg to get the heck out of Oregon at all costs in order to hitch a ride and go on over to Florida, if at all possible. It should be called like Florida Trail now. And then you could have, I guess, like BLM riders and little green dots throwing things. But anyway, it brings up this curious rise of Ron DeSantis too, and other governors like him who have taken bold stances on issues that are vital to the conservative movement. And finally, we have inevitably what is going to be a red wave in 2022 and 2024. What is all of this showing us? Well, it shows us that society in the West is getting fed up with wokeism. And our dangerous liaison with wokeism is hopefully gonna come to a very, very uh, necessary end very, very quick. So I, I liken it unto this, that you know, uh, maybe you got tired of the old girlfriend and so you, you go get that dangerous chick, the one who likes things on the wild side, who's unconventional and a little bit different, and the, the girl that your mother just absolutely can't stand because she showed up to dinner with like, you know, uh, probably like purple, crazy hair, whatever. You get, you get the point, right? Um, so as is often the case, those kind of relationships tend to last only for a very short while before you realize, you know, that girl crazy. And it's time to kind of move on and get some stability in my life. It's time to grow up and it's time to actually get with a girl that's interested in actually like raising a family, the one that actually has morals and one that you feel like you can live the rest of your life with. Um, and I think that's kind of where we're at with wokeism in the United States. Like we are finally like, we're leaving you. And, uh, and, the, and the girlfriend, because she's crazy, is responding to that and she's flipping out, she's throwing all your stuff out the house, uh, she's putting graffiti on your car and she's keying the car and she's making sure that, that she knows, uh, that you know that you, she is not all too pleased with the decision that you've made. But I wanna be fair about something here. I don't wanna just simply joke at the expense of wokesters and the social justice warrior movement and the progressive movement, which I've said very, very often is the progressive movement that wants to progress even if they move backwards, they will cut off their nose to spite their face. That's how committed they are to progressivism. Um, I, I also wanna be fair and be honest that, that the way I view things, um, and I might be wrong about this because this is just my assessment, 
But the way I view this is that we've moved to that crazy girlfriend from an old girlfriend. We've said goodbye to Christianity as a cultural influence and secularism has taken its place. And secularism just essentially is this, is the loss of religious institutions and meaning in everyday society. That's what secularism is. It doesn't mean that we're fully moved away from Christianity. It's that the definitions and the ideas of Christianity have lost their cultural significance. And so I think ultimately that preceded, you know, our getting together with the crazy girlfriend as we said goodbye to Christianity in the West. And I thought about this and, and I actually think that much of what we're seeing culturally right now is a critique of Christianity that in the, in the foreground of everything that's happening in the culture today truly is a critique of, of Christianity. Uh, and maybe even its perceived failures, but I'll get to that in just a moment. Now, somebody that agrees with this is Tim Keller, and he was recently, not so long ago, speaking with Russell Moore about this very issue, and I wanted to bring him in here because I think he is dead on correct about his assessment of what is going on culturally and how it is a response to Christianity. So here's him, here's him saying that. A post-Christian, non-Christian culture is harder to reach, I think, than a non-Christian culture for three reasons. One is, and uh, Russell's already alluded to this, one is there's no anxiety about sin in particular. In fact, it's hard to get people, get, uh, they, they have no concept of sin. So to even get across the concept of sin is something that is really difficult. You go to China, Africa, any, almost any other place, there's some concept, but not here. Mm -hmm. uh, secondly, uh, the, our culture was actually built to counter Christianity. In other words, it's basically an escape from Christianity. Mm -hmm. And therefore, it foregrounds the failures of the church in a way that um, other cultures have not done. If you go to China right now, there's a it's just very different to do evangelism. I may dig into this in a future episode, but I, I just want to kind of give you some of the receipts as far as I can tell. Um, that what's going on culturally is a direct response to, uh, to Christianity. Uh, or a critique of Christianity. So here we have, according to the Tennessean, a very quick clip of gobbledygook, you know, to prove that you can string together a bunch of words that don't really mean anything. Uh, here we have, according to the Tennessean, we have a neurodivergent, transgender, uh, public theologian, among other things, uh, that's, uh, that's here speaking to us about imaginal, imaginalizationaling, um, <laughs> again, uh, speaking gobbledygook here, uh, and, and so I want to show this and then I'll, I'll comment on it. Imaginal space of becoming. The not yet is, is in the space of a realized utopia. The not yet is the Christian message that we must embody in critical and creative ways to steward a narrative that calls us into being human with one another again. That is the kind of hope I want to invite us to embody. That is the kind of queerness that I hope we can practice. Okay, so what is this other than a direct critique of Christianity, right? This is Christianity's belief in a, uh, I won't even say traditional marriage, but belief in what marriage actually looks like according to scripture, what biblical sexuality looks like. Now, now, I'm saying all of this too, by the way, just a word of caution. Even if you're not a Christian and you're listening to this, please understand, I'm making a micro argument and I'll get to the macro here in just a moment. Uh, but, I, but I really believe that what we're seeing in the culture is really just a critique of Christianity. And so this is where you have supposed theologians like this kind of springing up to kind of reface Christianity for the world. 
But then we also have what is clearly also in line with what we just saw, a critique of biblical sexuality and a critique of the fundamental innocence of children in a Discovery Plus new documentary that's coming out about drag queen slash king children. So here's a little bit of the trailer for that. Welcome to the Pink Palace, my lovely friends. I first discovered drag at 13. I didn't know what it was, but I knew I wanted it. Put on the wig and the makeup, and I'm someone completely different. I'm so pretty! My drag name is Vanessa Shimmer, and she is just a force you cannot reckon with. How do I parent a child that wants to do drag? I never expected drag to be a part of our lives. Oh my god, these are so cute. These are problems I never thought I had to prepare for. What I love about drag is the glitz and the glam. My name is Noah. So even for a liberal, this is just straight crazy. Even for a Democrat watching this, like dressing children up to bend gender is just, it's not only abusive, it, it's, it's absolutely absurd. So where does that insanity come from? I think it clearly comes from a critique of Christianity that we're willing to rail against the old girlfriend um, and, and do so at the expense of ourselves and look totally insane in the process of doing so. So I really do believe that in the foreground of so much of what's happening culturally is a critique of Christianity. Now back to the clip with Tim Keller, Russell Moore's on there and he kind of legitimizes what I absolutely do not believe is true is that the reason people were rebelling against Christianity and why we are having the cultural moment we're having now is because people were fed up with the hypocrisy and maybe the uh, moral improprieties and the shortcomings of the Christian faith in the West and therefore people kind of railed against it or rebelled against it because they found it um, they found it hypocritical again. Now, I tend to think that, that this is what is happening, actually, is that people weighed in the balance Christianity and they found that concert-style worship music, pastors with skinny jeans, and church growth strategies actually didn't speak to their felt needs with things that were going on in the culture. It didn't address real issues that people are facing on their college campuses, that they're facing on their workplace with diversity, equity, and inclusion training, and the very real things that are happening right now that make people come away scratching their head and wondering, why is this happening? Well, Christian pastors and leaders were not providing answers for those things, and certainly not speaking up and giving the remedy to those things that Christians always had. So. We need Christian pastors speaking up uh, about abortion, pastors speaking up about transgenderism, leaders calling for a moral revolution in light of all of these things, but we didn't get that. And so now we don't even know the difference between good and evil, lies and truth, fact and fiction, and we're constantly faced with the insanity of our cultural moment. And we'll have to come to grips with the obvious reality that there is no objective truth with, without an objective truth maker. And our present suicidal fixation with fads and being recognized for self-imposed minority status will crumble underneath the weight of centuries of Christian thought if we can return to it. So when we finally get a group of Christians willing to go to war, then the world will see with their own eyes something attractive, something worth marrying. So in other words, what actually happened is that there was a, a breakup from a false Christianity that was not addressing issues. So in other words, courage 
was not being displayed. And it is what we desperately needed in our cultural moment to stand up against some of these things. Now, it's my hope that in the midst of everything that's happening, that what we'll actually see is a group of pastors who are not worried about the social cost and worried about the emotional blackmail of actually standing up firm for some of the issues that I just mentioned, transgenderism, abortion, among them, the many things. And that what we'll also see, now this is where we get to the, to the macro away from the micro, is that we'll also see a generation of people understand that morality matters. A generation of people understand that principles and values and ethics truly do matter. Now, we'll have to get back down to the micro if we really do that, and I think most people are afraid of that. And what I mean by that is that when we start whittling down and start really understanding morality, it will eventually lead us to some conclusions. And I think the atheist and the agnostic is very afraid of that ultimate conclusion, and certainly the woke, the woke leftist um, and the wannabe Christian. They're really worried about that because they would hate to come to the conclusion that Christianity might be a superior worldview that really is good for our society. But I digress. The point of all of that is this, is that if we see a generation of Christians who are willing to push aside the social cost, or a generation of people willing to push aside the social cost of so many of the lies that we've been told in our culture, and we actually return to things that can truly help our society be held together and, and, and be healthy, we will see what we're seeing right now. We'll see, as I mentioned at the top of the show, we'll see the red wave. We'll see governors like DeSantis stand up and we'll see uh, it really start to actually make an effect and an impact in our culture. See, the missing aspect here is just courage. Now, it may, that's, I'm a very simple person at the end of the day. I make no you know, claims of being fundamentally more intelligent than, than any other person <laughs> yeah, because this is just a simple proposition. It's truly simple at the end of the day. What we desperately need in this hour is courage. Christians didn't display it, but now we have a cultural moment where we can step back and we can say, okay, whether you're a Christian or not, courage is what we desperately need. Courage to stand up for the truth, courage to stand up for what is what, what is right. And so the question is really that this, is will we stand up for what we believe in? Will we take a stand against the nonsense? And, I, and there are people who are doing that right now, and it is changing the cultural moment. So that's why we're saying bye-bye so quickly to leftism, to the crazy girlfriend, is because courage is starting to become more commonplace. Now, it's my hope throughout the show today that I'll encourage that courage to become more and more commonplace. Uh, but we'll have to dig into some of the reasons for why courage is so necessary today in our headlines. So let's do that. All right, so over the weekend, AOC responded to uh, the, the purchase of Twitter by Elon, and this is what she had to say. Tired of having to collectively stress about what explosion of hate crimes is happening because some billionaire with an ego problem unilaterally controls a massive communication platform and skews it because Tucker Carlson and Peter Thiel took him to dinner and made him feel special. Don't you love that? Speaking of the crazy ex-girlfriend, uh, she has the habit to, to exaggerate a little bit, like the explosion of hate crimes, like it doesn't exist, nor will it ever exist. It's, it's not going to. Um, yeah, this is the same kind of talking point of like police brutality and stuff. And on average, it is so, so small and so limited uh, in terms of how many police interactions there actually are on a in a given year compared to, to when these things go south. It's, it's a wonder that they don't happen more, quite frankly. But, um, but, but I push all of the insanity of that tweet aside, and Elon responded to 
uh, to that tweet. So uh, here he is showing that he is better than AOC and her stooges at clapping back. Uh, and Eli said, stop hitting on me, I'm really shy. So by the way, if you don't know, this is AOC's go-to, right? Whenever her ideas are put to the test, Ben Shapiro, you know, said, I'd love to have a debate with you about these things. And she said, Ben Shapiro's catcalling me. You know, this is, her, this is her thing. She did it again when she went down to Florida, like everybody's obsessed with her. It's like, I, I think there may be somebody obsessed with you, but that person is best found in a mirror. Uh, so needless to say, this is her go-to. So Elon just kind of clapped back with it. And so epic fashion. But I really wanted to bring that up because it's funny, but also because I was scrolling through AOC's feed to when I found this, um, not really scrolling through it, but I, I, I found that and then directly under it actually was just something else that I think deserves our attention. So, uh, so here's another tweet from her that, that caught my eye. The extreme left is taking over? Where? She forgot a question mark, but that's what she means. In Texas, Republicans passed a law allowing rapists to sue their victims for getting an abortion. It's a lie, by the way. Can anyone name a, quote, far left, unquote, policy that extreme implemented anywhere? Again, uh, this is a gram little grammar help there. What she means to say is that uh, that we're a far left policy that extremists implemented anywhere. We can't even get our party to import cheaper prescriptions from Canada, F-O-H. So this is, this is really great. I thought this was a great opportunity on the show to kind of just put what she just said to the test. So again, this kind of is a response back to Elon who said, the left is getting so extreme, we have to do something about it. And she's like, the left is getting extreme, where? So if you want to really know, let's put that little, that little question to the test. All right, so 60 executive orders on day one from President Biden, one of which approved funding for abortion to people in other countries in the midst of a pandemic, right? Businesses are shut down, businesses are hemorrhaging, but we're gonna provide money to foreign countries so that they can abort babies. Now, by the way, I have to throw this in here too. California right now is considering uh, making good on their promise to make California an abortion sanctuary. And they're looking at a bill that would keep women from being held criminally liable for the death of their children up to 28 days after birth. So definitely not extreme. How about defunding the police? Because you know, that's the darling policy of the left in New York City. Uh, shootings and homicides rose by 97% and 44% respectively. In 2020 and felony assaults are up by 25% this year. And this comes on the heels of a $1 billion budget cut for police in July of 2020. Uh, just food for thought real quick. New York City, who was cutting their uh, city's police budget, blue or red? Yeah, blue. Yet seven of the eight candidates who ran in the Democratic primary for a Manhattan district attorney have pledged to cut the police budget even more. So as we can tell in blue cities like in San Francisco, LA and uh, Chicago and, and so certainly New York City, they are reaping the repercussions of an extremist left. Now, how about this? How about border security? So in fiscal year 2021 alone, U.S. Customs and Border Protection experienced 1.7 million encounters with aliens at the southern border, the highest number ever recorded in a single, single year. That number does not include people who evaded border control officers. So according to the internal Border Patrol estimates from January through August of 2021, more than 273,000 migrants avoided apprehension and entered our country illegally. That's insane, guys. 
These are new records never seen before. Fiscal year 2022 is already sharply outpacing 2021's record-breaking numbers. Okay, so by the way, the, the beauty gets more. U.S. Border Patrol Chief Ra Raul Ortiz anticipates in the next few days the U.S. will hit 1 million encounters with migrants attempting to illegally cross our southern border since October first. That's one million encounters in the last six months, outpacing last year's record numbers. All right. So again, according to this report, last month, the CBP encountered nearly 165,000 illegal immigrants at the border. That was the highest total for February in the Department of Homeland Security's history ever. Now, what accounts for that? This wasn't happening under Trump. For the last 12 months in a row, there have been over 150,000 encounters at the southern border, eight of which broke records. So as you can see, on the border front, definitely no extremist policies going on there. Certainly no open border policies affecting us. And then how about this one, the last one, gender-affirming care, which has become the buzzword for the Biden administration for chopping off, lopping off your body parts if you're a young boy or girl, because gender-affirming care is specifically, in this case, is aimed at children. So. The Department of Health and Human Services Office of Population Affairs released a document Thursday titled Gender Affirming Care and Young People. Population Affairs, huh? I wonder if they're interested in potentially cutting down on the population. Nonetheless, the same day, the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration's National Child Traumatic Stress Network, another subset of HHS, released a parallel document titled Gender Affirming Care is Trauma-Informed Care. The HHS documents describe what it calls appropriate treatment for transgender adolescents. And here's what they prescribe. Top surgery to create male typical chest shape or enhance breast. And bottom surgery on genitalia or reproductive organs. Facial feminization or other procedures. And then just recently, according to the Daily Wire, Biden's HHS just released a statement about gender-affirming care stating, medical professionals unanimously agree about the value of gender-affirming care. So good luck justifying that statement with the actual medical community. Uh, I, I think we know what this is. It's not a factual statement. It's a threat that if any of you doctors disagree with us, the HHS, you'll feel the full weight of Rachel Levine breathing his hot, steamy breath down your neck. I mean, it's ridiculous, right? Okay, so point being is just simply this. Her statement is fully insane. It's fully out of touch with reality. And, and the second thing, and the most important thing I have to say is just this, is the effectiveness of your party doesn't measure the radicalization of your party. Thank God that what they've been doing hasn't been as effective as it could be, or else our nation would look totally different. If these guys had their way, believe me, the, the nation would look would look scarier than it does right now. Now, the fact that the right is being effective in this hour has more to do with the fact that the left is so insane than that the right is so right all the time. Um, <laughs> again, her point is not well-founded and it's, and it's not based in any sense of reality. And, and it's really sad, in fact, that they've done what they've done and it's gonna take a while for us to kind of re regroup and recuperate from all of the insanity that has happened under the Biden administration. And I mean, you know, all of it would, would be so funny uh, that she's even suggesting that that's the world we live in that she did with her tweet. It would be so funny if it wasn't so sad. Speaking of which, funny and sad, 
Biden just recently attended the White House Correspondents' Dinner, and when I tell you that that man is a sight for sore eyes, I... Ugh. But it, it doesn't stop people from from writing articles like this in The Guardian, where it said that Biden's appearance at the dinner is being hailed as a return to normalcy. And I, I guess that's true. If the normal you wish to live in is that the president of the United States is declaring that our children actually belong to the state. These aren't, we always talk about these children. They're not someone else's children. They're our children. And that record inflation bordering on recession is normal and that a violent war in Ukraine exacerbated by a failed Afghanistan withdrawal that cost Afghan lives and the death of 13 U.S. soldiers. I guess if that's the normal you're talking about, yes, we have returned to full-on, in-your-face, slap-yo-mama normal. But don't worry, these elitists can laugh it up while all this is going on without feeling the slightest pull on whatever is left of their conscience. So here's Biden joking about his dismal approval rating. Thank you, Steve, for that introduction. And a special thanks to the 42% of you actually applauded. <laughs> I'm really excited to be here tonight with the only group of Americans with a lower approval rating than I have. Now listen, I, I don't want to be overly dramatic here, but isn't, isn't it a little bit infuriating to us that we're hearing this old man tell jokes when he's objectively the worst president in history? I was checking out at the grocery store yesterday and filling up my car and thinking, laugh it up while you can, dog-faced pony soldier, because that dream of six years more in the office uh, is probably not coming to pass, and I can't wait for DeSantis to absolutely mop the floor with you in 2024. But also... Um, I think we have got a great example of what's going on in the Biden administration with the bow tie. Watch that thing as it slowly begins to reflect the Biden, the Biden administration's progress. More partisan gridlock, but I'm confident we can work it out during my remaining six years in the presidency. <laughs> and folks, I'm not really here to roast the GOP. That's not my style. Besides... There's nothing I can say about the GOP that Kevin McCarthy hasn't already put on tape. <laughs> I know. See what I'm saying? I mean, that thing started straight and then slowly but surely, doo, 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 the longer this thing went on, the crazier it got. It directly mirrors this man's presidency, which is why you need to hashtag Biden's bow tie. The, the longer he is in office, the worse things get. No wonder there's a nervous laughter in that room. You know everybody in that room is on pins and needles, on the edge of their seat, nervous, wondering to themselves, is that dude going to straight up keel over in the middle of his talk, or worse, is he going to say something that gives our enemies yet another reason to believe that the U.S. is weaker than it's ever been, and now is the time to jump into something if we're going to do it? God, I, I'm just telling you, I, at least there was a, a little bit of a funny moment when, when Trevor Noah got up on stage and made a couple of leftists mad, so here's that. I know everyone in this room is worried about who catches you laughing at what, and, but just chill, just chill. We're celebrating, we're out. You know, get comfortable. Not too comfortable, Jeffrey Tubin. not too comfortable. <laughs> no, you know what, no, don't, don't ooh him, bunch of haters. You know what, so what, Jeffrey? You made a mistake, you whipped it out in front of your coworkers. That's the first step to winning a Grammy for comedy album of the year. You're halfway there, my friend. 
You don't let the haters stop you. We all come back from mistakes. So I'm no Trevor Noah fan, to be sure, but there are times where he actually is willing to tell a good joke, and, and this is one of them, so I have to give him credit. It's, uh, it's really funny. And it clearly made some pompous elitists in the crowd mad, so mission accomplished in my mind. Great White House Correspondents' Dinner, at least in that one, one small segment. Uh, but as we think about uh, what's going on with the left and we think about how they have impacted society, I can't help but want to turn just for a moment to look at Amber Heard and uh, the Johnny Depp trial. So uh, here's my assessment. I want to know what you guys think. You can put it down in the comment section below. Amber Heard is the new Jesse Smollett. Okay, so here's what I mean by that. Just like Jesse Smollett was a hate crime hoaxer, uh, Amber is an abuse hoaxer. So that, that's what I mean. They're cut from the same cloth, the same kind of cultural thing that's going on with Jesse and uh, is going on with Amber. So both are from Hollywood. Both are starving for attention because they're second-rate actors. I mean, the similarities could go on and on. I mean, you could even, if you got a sense of humor, you don't take yourself too seriously, put some down in the comments section and give me some more similarities. But both are having pretty recent brushes with the law in ways that reveal their absurdity. So I want to show you just a clip from the trial where Amber Heard's doorman is kind of like, in the funniest way, bringing us back to reality. I want to try to move along. So the incident was May 21st, 2016. You saw her the night of May 25th, correct? Correct. I said, on my head, I was like, you really, you think someone's trying to get into your unit? There's scratches like four inches above your the floor and your door. That was the dog trying to get into the unit. They were so afraid. Oh, someone's trying to get into my unit. They're like, oh, come on, really? So this dude vaping during the trial starts to emerge as the sane one in all of this circus, but still, his response and what's been going on in the trial leaves a, a look on the judge's face that I think just tells it all. I mean, you can look at her face, and I say her, not because I'm a biologist, but because this is a woman. You, you could just look at her face and just, it says everything about this trial. So check it out. Now, if you're listening and you missed that, let me just say that what you missed was a sheer look of disbelief, bewilderment, almost a look of despair in the judge's face as she was listening to that man and the people in her courtroom. So I bring this up only because I can't help but wonder if the world is really yet to divorce virtue signaling and victimization in the midst of everything that we've seen and how bad it really is. I mean, are we ready to stand on our own merits yet? and let who we are do the talking rather than trying to find some way to show the world how we've been victimized or mistreated and then posting that online so that we can get attention from absolute strangers that don't really care. Now we should be getting attention from God, from family, from friends, but not, not these desperate attempts to get likes and hearts from people who don't really care about you. Because if they did, they would say, stop whining, snap out of it, get back into reality, get a real job, find a way to love yourself without getting strangers to convince you that you are valuable. That's what a real friend would say. They would actually step in and say, enough of this trying to 
fight for minority status. Enough of this victimization Olympics. For crying out loud, stop the TikTok dancing to draw attention to your sexual identity. We don't care. Go find a church, get a dog, get a job, whatever, but stop with the victim, the virtue signaling, and the victimization. I'll call it victim signaling. I mean, all of this, to me, is a clamor for attention. All of this, to me, is a desire to deeply, deeply matter in ways that will ultimately not fulfill you. This is what we're looking for. We're looking for something to love us back. People on social media really don't love you back. I mean, let's be honest. If you're providing a service for them, great. And if you're serving them, cool. But they don't love you back. And, and I can't help but wonder if that's not what's going on in this Amber Heard trial. I'm just, I'm just gonna suggest that what I think took place is that Amber Heard was trying to capitalize on her Me Too moment. She was trying to jump on a cultural bandwagon and trying to get attention for her minority status. Because you should know, especially as transgenderism continues to like basically just destroy the category of woman, that woman is no longer enough in your intersectional hierarchy to truly, you know, find yourself mattering to the world by, because you're a minority, you know, because we're seeking minority status now to, to draw attention to ourselves, so, something that will help us be unique and distinctive, you know, and, and I just want to tell you, you're unique, just like everybody else in the world. But I digress. But, that, but I think that's what's at the heart of this trial, and I think ultimately it's a cultural thing that we're recognizing. We want something to love us back. So just friendly suggestion as we jump into Christianity, not today. Uh, maybe you should start a relationship with something that can love you back. I don't know. Maybe dog spelled backwards? You do the math. All right, let's jump into our final segment. All right, so today I want to leave you with some thoughts on a Christian argument that, that kind of mimics Christian arguments that I hear a lot later. They, lately, they sound better in theory than they do in practice because Tim Keller is, um, is here making an argument that I think does the same thing. I think it pulls on heartstrings. It sounds good in theory, but it's not actually good in reality. So here's what a recent tweet that he, uh, that he sent out that kind of lit up a firestorm. So here's what it says. Churches must not maintain unity at the expense of the gospel. Churches should not destroy unity over political differences. Now, first thing I got to say is this, is disagreement is not, disun is not disunity. Uh, very often, the people who you're going to find yourself disagreeing with the most are your neighbors. So when Christians disagree, it's probably actually a very normal thing. It's, it's probably very common. And we have to stop getting to the place where we're upset or disturbed or worried about the fact that Christians could disagree with each other. Uh, you know, a while back, we, we, we used to say in our, in our circles, you know, uh, how are people going to believe that, um, uh, that Jesus is real if you guys can't even agree amongst yourself? Well, because our agreement doesn't actually, doesn't actually decide whether or not Jesus is, is real or not. I think it's just a, a bad argument. But, but I go back to this idea. So neighbors are going to disagree with one another. So if we're disagreeing about political things, that doesn't necessarily mean disunity is at hand. So I, I question whether or not there is as much division and disunity um, going on as much as we should. And then I also want to say this, that, and I'll dig into this a little bit more in a second, but false unity is not unity. 
Um, so if we are dividing over certain issues that are uh, that are important and they just happen to be of a political nature, then they deserve to be divided over. And again, I'm going to get into this in just a moment. So I, I just want to leave that with you. I know that may not be soul satisfying yet, but but hang with me and I'll try to justify the idea that there are political issues that we should be disagreeing and dividing over. Not because we love division, but because division is is absolutely necessary in in some cases because false unity is not real unity in the first place. But I want to digress for just a moment and circle back and just say, I, I think ultimately this whole desire not to be disagreed with is actually a problem. Um, I, I think what's what could be happening, now I don't think this is Tim Keller, by the way, but I think this is true about many people in society today is that there is this kind of soft Christianity that can't handle critique and that can't handle somebody disagreeing with them. And, and what actually needs to happen is we need thicker skin, not less conversation about, about these issues. But more into the argument that, that Keller makes about, the, uh, about you know, political and gospel. So this is a false binary in my, in my estimation. I think this is a, a false binary that he's creating, a logical fallacy, if you will. So, you, so he's making this binary. You either have political or gospel distinctives. But this is not true. You can have distinctly political issues that also happen to be gospel issues. So there's a third category, gospel and political issues. For instance, political policies in a party that endorses tricking children into believing that they're trans is a political and anti-gospel stance. So a Democratic Party that would vote not to hold mothers criminally, li criminally liable for the death of their 28-day-old baby is taking an anti-gospel stance and a political stance. So, so as hopefully, as you can see there, there are political issues that also intersect with gospel issues. And this is where we need to use even political things at our disposal in order to make sure that we're standing for things that truly matter. In other words, here's the deal, is that you cannot call yourself gospel-centric if you are not willing to stand up for things that also intersect in political areas. Now, there may be a lot of overlap that is unnecessary there where people are dividing over political issues that don't deserve to be divided over. I'm all for that. And I, and I really do appreciate the heart of Keller to want to try to protect unity. I think that's a gospel reality. But this next point, I think, is the more important point and why I think Keller should have been more careful when he wrote his tweet. And plus, by the way, you should know that he's had to go back and endlessly kind of justify this tweet with explanations about it. And I just I just think I personally, if I have to justify what I wrote in a tweet that much, it's possible that the tweet is not well written. Uh, but needless to say, the, the reason the tweet really is not well written is because there's a saying that I learned from Dennis Prager and listening to his fireside chat. He said this, clarity before agreement. Now, what does that mean? Well, it means two things. It's both chronological and it's a prioritization. So the prioritization. So before you can ever truly have agreement, you must have clarity, right? So it, that's what I mean by priority. You need to place a priority, not just on unity, because then you might be creating a false unity. And so what you need to place a priority on is clarity. So regardless of if it's a political issue or a gospel issue as it's classified, the one thing that needs to happen regardless of those issues is that we need clarity on those issues. And then we can actually discuss those issues and we can see if we do agree on those issues or we don't agree on these issues. And that's what I also mean by chronology. So before you can actually have unity, 
you must have clarity so that not only are you not creating a false unity, but also too very often when you talk to people who are your neighbors and you are the closest to and you have disagreements with, because again, you're not fighting with the guy in five subdivisions over unless you know him personally. What you're typically doing is the guy that you share a fence line with, you're talking to him about cutting his grass and blah, 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 blah. So that's just normal, right? So in order to truly have unity, what you'll find is that you need to have discussions, create clarity, and then very often you'll find that that person who's closest to you, you don't disagree with them all that much. Now, you may on social media because it's a horrible place to have these conver conversations, frankly. I think we can agree on that. But, uh, but the point is, is this, is that in order to truly see eye to eye, what you have to have first is clarity. And I don't think that tweet gives clarity. I think Keller's tweet actually just paints with too broad a brush. And it just says, political over here, gospel over here. And, and I think I hopefully illustrated that, that there's a little bit more of an intersection there that needs to be discussed. Listen, guys, we're creating a generation of people who don't really understand Christianity anymore. At the top of the show, when I showed you our public transgender theologian, I mean, what does that speak to you other than that there are people who actually think that this is Christianity? They're deceived that much into just totally disregarding Scripture and disregarding what the Bible says about these things that they actually think that this is Christianity. And it's simply because we are not willing into in, to enter into conversations about these things. Very often I fight for this on the show. And I often wonder if people think, oh, well, what is conversation doing? Talk, 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 talk. Uh, the more you talk, the more sin, there, there, the more room for sin there is. And, and while there is some truth to that, the, the reality is, is that conversation does make a huge difference. It can really make a great impact. If we're shutting down conversation with platitudes and things that sound better in theory than they do actually in practice, I think that that's actually a disservice to Christians and a disservice to our society. But here's what I'm saying at the end of the day. I almost wonder if Keller would agree with this. Um, I don't care about whether or not people agree with me, agree with my political stance. I don't really even care if it creates a kind of division where I'm not walking in fellowship with those people. If we haven't first discussed clearly what a gospel issue is and how those things might intersect with political issues. If we're not really willing to stand up for, for issues that matter, transgenderism, abortion, uh, I mean, just think about it this way. Could you imagine what the abolitionists uh, would sound like and where we would be as a society if they had said, well, we're Christians, we're not political, we're not going to stand up against slavery. Like, like, thank God they didn't take that stance and they didn't care what slave owners in the South who called themselves Christians thought about it. They were gonna stand up for what was right and the equality of those who were made in the image of God. And so, thank God they did that. They weren't concerned with the collateral damage of taking a stand for the truth. And I guess this is all I'm saying at the end of the day, is that we have to be more concerned with standing for truth than we are with, with, with false unity. Because maybe it makes us feel good that we've brought these people from different perspectives all together and all you had to do to bring them all together was just absolutely lie to them. So the truth, is the only thing that's going to really cause us to, 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 to lean in to true unity. So I, I tend to think that that's the thing we need to emphasize, that that's where we need to get back to is just speaking about whether it's political or gospel, just say the truth, man. And, and the truth 
not according to me, not according to my arbitrary standards, but the truth according to reason, the truth according to morality, the truth according to scripture. But until then, we'll just be having false unity in the first place. We'll, we'll have a church full of people who uh, believe a whole bunch of unbiblical things, but because we're just willing to pick a couple of issues that we think we can have white agreement on, uh, then, then we'll be able to protect that unity, but also we'll be sacrificing the truth on the altar of our own of our own ego, I think, in the process, and the altar of our own desire to want to like, uh, to 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 win people into our church and win people to our personality, rather to win them to the truth. And and I, at the end of the day, again, I'm just saying we got to get back to the truth. And if we do that, I think people will respect it. I think people will flock to the idea that the the mushy middle. And the, the erosion of the mushy middle and moving to sides is actually a good thing because it's creating a clarity for us where we know what people believe and what they think. And this is what we need to, to strive for in the church. When people know what we truly think and what we believe, they don't have to agree with us. They don't have to like it. They don't even have to come after that's stated. But at least they will know. So they know when they come, they'll know why they are coming. But again, so many pastors, so many leaders are afraid to do that because they're afraid of alienating people. And I think the actually the opposite is happening, is that they're making it mushy and obscure and not allowing people clear on roads to the truth of what, of what God has for us. So whether that verges on the political or, or whether it's pure, straight-up gospel and whether or not those two distinctions are as clear as we think they are, the one thing I can say is this, is that true agreement happens when we can find the truth. And if we care about the truth and value the truth, that's when true agreement is really going to happen. So for that reason, we won't say Keller not today, but we will say that tweet from Keller. Christianity, not today, bro. Well, thanks so much for watching. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe. And if you were listening today, trickle on over to YouTube for me and make sure to, uh, to subscribe to the channel there. Thanks so much again for watching. We'll catch you next time. You can catch brand new episodes of Indie Thinker with Reed Uberman every Monday and weekly bonus episodes to keep you thinking throughout the week. But you have to subscribe and click the bell to be notified when new episodes drop. If you enjoy this content, make sure to like this video and share it with friends.